we assume things will always be in place like they're supposed to be. Uh, and usually they are. But when they're not there, it changes life very, very quickly, and we find out this, that, that quote-unquote civilization, as we know it, is very fragile. Very fragile. We, we are not nearly as uh, much in control as we like to think, are we? Now let's bow to the one who is in control. Lord, you spoke to the man whose hand was withered and his hand was withered no more. The man who had been blind since birth. After you interacted with him, he was no longer blind. Lazarus was dead and you told him to come out. The disciples were absolutely panicked and just scared out of their wits in that storm. And then you woke up and you commanded the storm to be still. And instantaneously it was. They, they were just stunned. They, they, they were speechless. We are grateful that you run everything. We are grateful that you control everything. I, I always think of that phrase that R.C. Sproul uttered years ago, that in your universe there's not one maverick molecule. You own it all. You run it all. We don't understand all of that. At times we wonder why this happens and this happens. And that's just simply because we're human and, and we can't figure it out and we don't know your purposes and it's just too lofty, it's too high. The commentator this week, Daniel Shore, said that if indeed you control everything, then you had some explaining to do for this hurricane. You have no explaining to do. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, deliver us from, from arrogance and from pride. And those of us who have lived 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years and we think we know something, we know nothing. You are great, we are not. You know all things. All things. You have all power. And this week, Tony Campolo questioned if you had all power. Well, you do. We just simply need to read our Bibles and marvel at who you are and how great you are and how magnificent you are. It is astonishing that uh, you have brought us to know you. We had no interest in you, but you were interested in us. And you caused us to be born again. And you breathed life into us. 
you not only save us from our sin, but then you want to make something out of us, and you want to utilize us in our skills and our gifts. You assign us to our individual post. There's a reason that we are alive. And as we go through life, nothing by chance happens to us, nothing random It's not that some of us are lucky and some of us aren't. You're working a plan in every guy's life who's in this room tonight. So I pray that as we hone in on what you did in Paul's life, that we might be encouraged. There's a lot of nonsense being taught in evangelical Christianity these days. We would simply ask, Lord, that as we look at your word and we look at it carefully and in its context, that things we don't understand would start making sense. That would be our prayer. We ask for teachable hearts. We ask for teachable spirits. We ask for teachable attitudes. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you saw the movie Back to the Future, you are familiar with the DeLorean time machine. That enabled them to do some remarkable things, to go back in the future. So they did. They went back to what, 1955, 1956? I'd like you to imagine this scenario. Imagine getting in your DeLorean uh, time machine and going back to Rome during the time of the New Testament. And as you get out of the time machine and you find yourself in this great civilization and this great city, you have a purpose in being there, and your purpose is to simply ask different citizens of Rome, who are the people of Rome? Who are the truly great people of Rome who will be remembered in 2,000 years? That's your assignment. So the first guy, you see, you lay the question on him. Who will be remembered in 2,000 years? Well, the first, uh, Caesar. Caesar would have to be remembered. Uh, Nero, who's running things right now. Uh, he, he's, I really shouldn't say this, but he's nuts. And he's off his rocker and he's dangerous. But uh, he'll be remembered. Not for anything great, but he'll be remembered. Um, gosh, who else? Brutus? You ask different people, and the same names come up over and over again. They're, they are the ones that will be remembered. And then you throw out a couple of names. Uh, well, there's this, there's this uh, man by the name of Paul. In fact, he's in prison just up the road here, not too far away. 2,000 years, do you think he'll be remembered? Uh, no, I don't. in fact, I've never heard of him. And he's in prison? Yes, I, I doubt that in 2,000 years he'd be remembered. Uh, well, he was a follower of, and is a follower of Christ. There were some other men. There's Peter. No, I have not heard of him. There were some women that were very closely associated with Christ. Mary and Martha. Never heard of them either. Uh, you can't find anybody who would agree that they are significant people whose lives make a difference. This Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha. Never heard of them. Caesar, Nero, Brutus, they're the ones that will be remembered. Isn't it interesting? Here we are 2,000 years in the future. And uh, what's the fact of the matter? Well, we name our kids.
kids and our grandkids, we name them Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha. Those are the names we give our children. And we name our dogs Brutus, Caesar, (laughs) Nero. Interesting, isn't it? How time changes things. Paul was one of the all-time greats. Uh, Paul's life is, uh, is just an absolute remarkable story. Uh, Paul had a resume that would uh, knock your socks off. Paul was a guy that could match resumes with anybody, and he didn't have to falsify anything on his resume. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says in Philippians, he was a, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the, the tribe of Benjamin, in spite of all the apostasy, they pretty much stayed on course in contrast to the other tribes. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He had nothing to do with that. That had to do with his parents. But he had a, he had a, a, a very solid family background. He studied under Gamaliel, which would be the, the equivalent of going to Oxford and Cambridge and the universities that uh, so many would want to have on their resume. He, he, was, uh, he, he, was a man that, uh, he, he was a man that, quite frankly, ha- had all of the credentials. That was Paul. He was uh, fervent in... Uh, in his love for the law and his love for God, so he thought. To the, to the point that when this sect called Christianity began to uh, explode and began to uh, find its way across the region, uh, he made it his personal vendetta to obliterate this new sect. When they martyred Stephen, the first martyr, Paul held their coats. And, and then he took it upon himself to go from city to city to, to wipe out the leadership of Christianity. He was on his way to uh, Damascus, and his whole life changed. Because the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, and from then on, it was all different. And the truth that he was trying to suppress, uh, his, his eyes were, were opened spiritually, after he was blinded physically, and he realized that he was wrong and that Christ indeed was risen, and he made a U-turn. Incredible story, remarkable story. Uh, Paul was a leader. Uh, He was a leader before he became a Christian. But as a result of being converted, he couldn't, he couldn't immediately begin to lead. Because you see, there is a process that God takes men through. What what God does is that God takes strong men and he breaks them down and he makes them weak. And then once they're weak, he begins to rebuild them and then he can use them. He did that in Paul's life. He did it in Moses' life. He did it in uh, just about any figure in the scripture who was given enough biographical press, you see this process happening in the life of a man. Um, There there has to be a readjustment of how we think, because as leaders, we're leaders. Uh, We know what we want, we know what we're after, 
We're goal-oriented. We have a plan. We want to execute the plan. But somewhere in that process, if we're going to be the leaders that God wants us to become, the first thing that must happen is that, uh, well, you see, to be, a, to be a leader, you've got to be a great submitter. And you've got to be a great follower. That's sort of a thumbnail sketch of the process that God takes us through. Um, there are a lot of guys who think they're leaders. There are a lot of guys that have titles of leadership. You know, one of the things about, uh, one of the things about crisis is that crisis always demonstrates who the true leaders are. Always. How many of you guys uh, are fluent in Chinese? Just curious. Are you fluent in Chinese? All right. Well, then you can tell me if this is true or not. I have been told that the Chinese word for crisis is comprised of two other Chinese words. The first word is uh, danger. When you're in a crisis, there's some kind of danger. Now, we've had a crisis over the last week that George Bush was responsible for. (laughs) Doggone it, he just steered that sucker right to New Orleans, didn't he? It's amazing, his power. A lot, a lot of people blaming here and blaming there and doing all this. Uh, you, 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 nobody controls hurricanes except God. It's just the fact of the matter. Um, that's just nonsense. God runs the show. God runs everything. And we've got this radar now that people have never had before. And I remember looking at that storm and hearing the commentator say, this is now twice as big as, as Andrew. And uh, they, they knew there were going to be some problems. There was danger. See, that's why everybody got thrown into crisis. When there's crisis, there's danger. There are going to be a lot of bodies. A lot of people lost their lives. A lot of people barely survived. But there was true, authentic danger. So the Chinese word for crisis is comprised of the word danger, but it's also comprised of the word opportunity. Opportunity. See, whenever there's a crisis, there's danger, but there's also an opportunity. When we have an authentic crisis, um, it's always a test of leadership. Always. I first read this book... um, 28 years ago. The book is called The Effective Executive, written by Peter Drucker. One of the best books I have ever read. Uh, this is, uh, my, my other copy is beat up, and this is my newest copy, and it's marked. I'll just read the, the back cover to you. The measure of the executive, Peter Drucker reminds us, is the ability to get the right things done. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say the measure of the executive is the ability to get things done. No, the ability of the executive is to get the right things done. Now, we have different names for executives. CEO. 
Um, he's an executive. Fire chief, he's an executive. General, he's an executive. Mayor, governor. Those are, those are pretty neat titles. A lot of people would aspire to those titles. With those titles come, um, come perks. With those titles come privilege. With those titles come uh, special parking spots. With those titles, you don't wait in line. With those titles, you don't wait for a table. With those titles, you um, are in the public eye. Um, with those titles, you have power. With those titles, you have uh, privilege. With those titles, you have status. Let me paraphrase. The measure of the mayor is the ability to get the right things done. Now, let me say this. I, I've been on some websites, and you have too. I've been reading timelines of everything that took place and all of this. And, you know, again, we, we know what's going on. Everybody's throwing blame on everybody else, and that's fine. That's kind of what happens in deals like this. Everyone's trying to cover the, the rear end. But the fact of the matter, when you start looking at the structure of this nation and how things are put together, uh, we, have, we have something in this nation called law. Um, if you went to law school, you may not be familiar with that. But <laughs> there is something called law. And as a result of that, you just can't send in, the federal government can't, just can't send in anybody anytime they want. Because we have law in place. Unless there are certain situations like an insurrection. So as a result, you see, we kind of work it from the ground up. So we've got, this is how we run this country. So we've got cities, and then we've got counties, and then we've got states. So we have mayors, and we have governors, and we have, you guys know the drill. Now we've got some people that are in the hot seat right now. I'm grateful, uh, can I say this to you? Um, I, I could write a multi-volume of my leadership screw-ups on what I've done. I, 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 I look back sometimes at some of the things I have done in leadership capacity. I just shake my head. And I wonder, how could I have been so cotton-picking stupid? Uh, you've done that. I've done it. But the measure of an executive, the measure of a mayor, the measure of a pastor, the measure of a father, the measure of a husband, is the ability to get not things done, it's the ability to get the right things done. It's true for all of us. Now, when there's a crisis, you find out if the right things have been done. You wake up in the middle of the night, and there's smoke, and you can't see where you're going, and there's fire, and you can't get to certain places, you find out, as a father, if you did the right things. I was in the garage the other day. My kids are all grown up now. But I'm going through some stuff that we just had a pile, and I found this old chain-link ladder. We used to have that in our house in Coppell. This old chain. I mean, I've, I've, I've toted that thing around for 20 years. But I had it upstairs in the bedroom in case there was a fire. 
and I was going to kick out a window, and I was going to throw that sucker over that windowsill, and that's how we were going to get out. Now, you know what? We never had a fire. We never did. But if we did, it was my job, not the fire department, it was my job to get them out. You see? In that situation, they weren't asking me, hey, Steve, how many books have you written? And how many guys were at Promise Keepers last weekend? Don't ask me that. That didn't mean snot. Because the issue is, have you done the right thing for your family in this situation? See, crisis always proves what a, what a leader is really made of. Always. Always. There's danger. And there's opportunity. God is in the process of making us into better men, and he's in the process of making us into better leaders. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to see some things here in regard to how it is that God develops his men. Paul was a guy who had a lot of gifts, and he had a lot of abilities, and he worked hard. He was at the head of the class. But he had to unpack some baggage before God could use him. And that's not only true of Paul, it's true of all of us. Now let's zero in here. You've got the, the normal opening for an epistle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Interesting, he would say that. that well, the reason it's interesting is that they were at Corinth. What was Corinth like? It was a seacoast town. Corinth was a lot like New Orleans, quite frankly. Corinth was a wicked city. New Orleans is a wicked city, and they're proud of it. A lot of seacoast ports are very, very wicked. Corinth was a wicked city. Corinth would be like New Orleans. Corinth would be like San Francisco. All kinds of sexual perversion, all kinds of different things available to anybody. People coming in, going out from all over the world. Uh, quite frankly, a cesspool. That's what Corinth was. But I want you to note, if you would, verse 3. Because we get a snapshot here of how it is, of how it is that God works in 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 our lives in order to develop us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You note verse 4 there, where it says, he comforts us in, our, in, in all of our affliction. Uh, you look that word up in a Greek lexicon, you're going to find some different synonyms for that word. Yes, it means affliction. It also means, uh, you, you'll find right there with it, pressure. Pressure. Let's read it that way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our pressures. Pressures. If you're a leader, you've got pressure. If you're a man, you've got pressure. It's part of being a man. 
you keep reading in that lexicon under this word, under this entry, you'll not only find affliction, you'll not only find pressure, you'll find, uh, you'll find crushing. Crushing. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our crushings. You see, this is what happens in the Christian life. Uh, at some point in your life, and more than once in your life, you're going to encounter affliction. Uh, you're going to encounter uh, tremendous pressure. You're going to encounter uh, crushing. Before I came over here, um, I was sitting there at the kitchen counter with Mary, and she said, you, she said, you want a cup of coffee? And I said, yeah, because I, I, I did. Because I needed the caffeine. And, uh, and just as she said that, this fly lands on the counter. And she says, there's that fly. I've been trying to get that fly for two days. So I uh, got up and I went to the bedroom and I got my old hat. My old baseball cap. And I just put it right there next to me. And we're sitting there drinking coffee, and a few minutes later, that fly comes in for another landing. And I got up very, very carefully. And I gradually, I moved slowly and deliberately. I got my hat. And then I, I just kind of moved around to where I was behind that fly. And then I, I went just like this. And I moved in and over. <laughs> and I removed my hat. And there was that fly in two pieces. Mary said, my gosh. I said, Mary, I delivered a crushing blow. <laughs> I was quite proud of myself. Had to share that with you. I'm feeling pretty good about myself tonight. <laughs> I, I, I was kind of shocked I cut that sucker in half, but I did. I must have hit him just right. Uh, that, 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 was a, that was a crushing blow. And the reason I said that is this text was on my mind. Sometimes uh, life hits us like that. Now, you know what? It doesn't cut us in half. It, that's almost merciful for that to happen. That fly never knew what hit him. Um, but sometimes life can get so hard and life can get so rough and life can get so difficult. Uh, and the crushing and the weight is so strong upon us and you've got chest pains in your chest and there's nothing wrong with your heart. It's just stress. It's just weight. It's just pressure. It's just affliction that it would almost be merciful to someone come along and just and take you out. If you know what I'm talking about, perhaps you've been in positions where, where quite frankly, you just, you just wish you could die. Ever been there? Some of you have. I, I, said, I said earlier that there's a lot of nonsense in, in Christianity. There's a lot of foolishness. 
I should have brought this quote, but some young journalism intern was writing about the state of Christianity in Europe and the fact that there are these huge cathedrals that are empty. And his comment was, we too in America have, have huge megachurches that are full of people and empty. That was pretty profound. Well, if they're full, how can they be empty? Because they're empty of truth. Uh, you'll hear a lot of nonsense, quote-unquote, from Christian leaders and Christian teachers. Uh, you'll hear a lot about uh, prosperity. Yeah, we even call it the prosperity gospel. God, God always wants you well. God always wants you healthy. God always wants you prosperous. God always wants you to be moving on up. God always wants you in this new car and this new car and this new house and this boat and this lake house. And that's if, if, if you're walking with the Lord in faith and if you sow your seed, that's all those jacks ever talk about. That's all they talk about. And sow your seed into my ministry. All right, well, what are you going to do with it? Um, see, if you listen to that crap, you're going to be real disappointed. Now, you're not going to find that in here. Now, will, will God bless us, and will God take care of us, and will God provide for us? Yeah. But you know what? There are times he'll pull the rug right out from under you. And why is that? Because he wants us to mature. He wants us to develop. He wants us to grow. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all, in all our crushings and afflictions and pressures. So, wait a minute, what's this about? But what, what, what do you mean in these crushings and afflictions and pressures? Well, because that's, that's pretty normal. It's not unusual. You won't always be there, but that is part of the process God takes us through. And this can be kind of shocking, and this kind of throws us as leaders, because as leaders, you see, we, we have plans, and we have visions, and we have hopes, and we have dreams. Uh, this, this has been a terrible thing to see, to see what, is, what has happened, and to see how many people, their lives have been radically changed forever, and uprooted, and uh, literally walking out with the clothes on their back. I, I, I saw a, a, a gentleman, my heart just broke for him the other night and he he just he was absolutely devastated he was lost and you probably you may have seen this and and the reporter was asking him what happened and he said my was my my wife was with me and i just couldn't hold on any longer and she she's gone and she's just gone and it was just it just the saddest thing you ever saw poor guy he obviously loved her to death she's gone and he, said, and he said, I've lost everything. I've lost everything. I have no future. Now, please understand um, why he would feel that way. Uh, I thought of Psalm is it 37, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
that man and a lot of other folks have been crushed and devastated. They, they've, they've, they've taken tremendous loss. And, and we can understand why someone would say, I, 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 and I saw another lady, and she, you probably saw this too. She's standing out in front of her, what was her house, and, and it's just all gone. She, she said, I've lost everything. She said, I have no future. Now, it's easy for me to say this because I haven't lost everything. But it needs to be said. And it needs to be said kindly and with an understanding spirit of what they have gone through. When someone says, I've lost everything, that would be a true statement in terms of the, the physical and material things. When we hear this comment, I have no future, that's not right. They do have a future. It's just not the future they envisioned. At some point, that happens to many of us. There is a loss, there is a setback, there is a crushing, there is an affliction, there is a pressure. You thought at this point in your life you would be here. And, and it's normal, and we make plans, and we have hopes and dreams and aspirations, and, but, but when that is ripped away from us, we, we think we're done, we think we're finished, we, 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 we say, I have no future. No, you have a future, it's just not the future you thought you were going to have. Now, why is that? Because there is a God who is bigger than you, and there is a God who is bigger than me. And whatever it is that has happened... He has allowed that to happen. When Job lost everything, everything, he tore his clothes, and Job said, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not what he said. That's what most evangelical Christians would say. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes That's hard to swallow sometimes. Well, I thought God is good. He is good. Psalm 119, verse 68, the Lord is good and does good. Well, then why has this been taken from me? That's really hard. That's, that's, that's hard to assimilate. It's hard to understand. So what we tend to do is, what we tend to do is, we try to downsize God. And, and in, order, in order for us to be able to get a, a handle on what's going on and why God has allowed something bad, to happen, I was, I mean, I read this this week. Uh, Tony Campolo said that he thought that perhaps Rabbi Harold Kushner was correct. Kushner wrote a book with the title, I'll think of it in a minute, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Kushner, who is a rabbi, basically, you know how he explains what happened? When bad things happen to good people, is that God, quite frankly, is not as powerful as we have thought him to be. That's what Kushner said, and that's what Campolo said. I, I saw the quote. Now, if I'm wrong on the quote, I'll let you know, but I read it. Um,
Now, it doesn't matter what Campolo says. It doesn't matter what I say. It matters what this book says. That's the authority. And this book says God knows all things and God controls all things. So we're, we're moving around. And we're going about life, and, and, and something will happen. Some tragedy, some crisis will happen in our lives. And, and then the first thing we want to know, when, when something is pulled away from us, and something, some loss or some devastation, and of course, the first thing we want to know, because we're human, is why? Why? I'm trying to walk with you. I'm not against you. I'm for you. Why? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Now catch this who comforts us in all our affliction. Now here's the why. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's why. I'm leaving the house today for a lunch meeting, and I'm getting, I'm getting my keys and I'm getting my stuff, and there's a loud knock at the door. Real loud knock. Now, who the heck is that? I go down, and there's this guy standing there named uh, Ricky. And I first met him a couple of months ago. Uh, my son John was driving up to Denton along I-35 on the service road, one of those stretches. There's really no businesses, no houses. And uh, John passes this guy walking down the road. And John looks in the rearview mirror, and this guy looks pretty down. John pulled over, backed up, talked to him for a minute, had some interaction with him, and the guy had really fallen on some difficult times. So uh, we had a couple projects, and we had him come over and work and, and, uh, for a few days and got to know him. Uh, haven't seen him for six, seven weeks. He was at the door. And... Uh, he said, I was just wondering if you had any work that I could do because some things have happened. And uh, he told me what had transpired, and it was pretty unfortunate and pretty sad. And uh, he said, I, I, I need to go home to Atlanta. I need to get a bus ticket. And I said, man, I, 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 I wish I had some work. We had projects, and they're done. But I'll tell you what, you need to get, you need to get back home. He said, I really do. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll work. I said, I'll tell you what. What's it cost to get to Atlanta? He told me. I said, all right. I said, I'm going to jump in. We went by the ATM and uh, got him some money to get on the bus and a little extra to make his way back. And it's a pretty tough situation. Some of it of his own making. He would admit to that. Um, I pulled it to the ATM and uh, punched it in. And I'm going to give you some details here I wouldn't normally give you, but I'm just going to give them to you, and you can think whatever you want. I'm not trying to make myself look good here. It was just the thing to do. I punched it in. I said, Rick, here's 300 bucks. And he starts crying. And he, he couldn't even express how much that meant to him. He had walked from Denton to my house to ask me if there was any work. He hoped that I was there. From Denton to my house is about 12 miles. He was desperate. Uh, when I dropped him off, he still had tears in his eyes. And then I went down to my 
meeting in Dallas. And I was thinking back uh, to 1982 when uh, when God was trying to develop me and mature me. And I had been pastoring a church, but I resigned thinking I was going to another church. Uh, some of you guys have heard me tell this story, but that didn't happen. That church said, no, this isn't going to work out. Well, I already left the other church. I was very puzzled. God, how could this happen? The next day I get a call from another church. I thought, ah, oh, this is why this happened, because you have this other church for me. And we went through the process, and right, we got over to the end, and they said no. I thought, what, what? I can't believe this. And the, but the next day, another church called. Actually, a better situation. Ah, oh, this is why the first two didn't work out. God must want me to go here. That happened to me seven times in nine months. I had a wife. I had two little kids. And as, this, as we're going through this process, nobody wanted me. And as we're going through this process, I'm running out of money. And as I'm running out of money, I had to sell Mary's car, and that got us by, because I was sure this next church, this was the one God had for us, and it wasn't. And I remember the morning that um, I got up and I had less, um, I didn't have $100, I don't think I had $50. <coughs> and I had to go to the store. Now, we, we had a nice home, and we, you know, we looked like we were doing okay. We weren't doing okay. And I felt like a real failure. And uh, about three months before, a guy had called me who had listened to one of my tapes. And he called. He didn't live nearby, but he said, I've listened to this tape over and over again. Is there any way I could buy you lunch? And, you know, I pull out my calendar. Well, this day was the day I was going to have lunch with this guy. I didn't have his phone number. I didn't know how to reach him. And the last thing I wanted to do was go over to the Hyatt in Burlingame, California and meet this guy and have lunch. But I did. And I'm talking to him, and he starts telling me about, you know, the tape and all this and how much it meant. He's asking me questions, and we're talking. And, and all of a sudden, the guy just drops his head. Uh, I mean, he just dropped it. I mean, it just it was like everything just came to a screeching halt. And I'm trying to be interested in the guy, but I'm so under so much pressure, I'm trying to figure out, what the heck are you doing, God? And the same time, I'm, yes, God is good and God is great. Isn't he wonderful? And yeah, that sermon I preached, I'm not sure I should have preached that sermon. Because I'm just being honest with you. I was just being crushed to death here. And, but I'm trying to be civil and nice and polite and interested, but I'm distracted. And this guy just drops his head, and I thought, gosh, did I, did I offend this guy? And I mean, he, he probably for 15 or 20 seconds, he looked up at me. He says, can I be absolutely honest with you? I said, yeah. I said, yeah. He said, I mean, dead level honest? He said, I got to tell you something. I've never been in this situation before in my whole life. I said, well, yeah. What's, what's wrong? He said, can I tell you something? I listened to that tape over and over, and I listened to it over and over. And after I listened to it five or six times, I woke up in the middle of the night, and God put you in my heart. And then it happened again, and it happened again. And I told my wife about it, and I said, you know what I think? I think I'm supposed to help this guy financially. He said, that was, that was nine weeks ago. Well, nine weeks ago, I was doing okay. He called, it was 12 weeks ago. So he called, makes an appointment. It's this day we're getting together. And he said, I, 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 this never happens to me. I, I'm very embarrassed. I, I don't know if you have a need. I'm just, I've been under all kinds of pressure, but I think I'm supposed to do this, but I'm afraid you're going to think I'm nuts. Can I ask you a question? He said, do you have a financial need? 
I mean, this guy was like desperate. And you know what I wanted to say? No. That's how proud and arrogant I am. I said, well, actually I do. He said, I'm really glad to hear that because I've already made out this check. (laughs) There was a check for $500. This guy didn't know me from Adam. I haven't seen the guy since. And when I drop this guy off today and I'm driving down to Dallas, I remembered that. And I remember the tears that welled up in my eyes when that guy obeyed the Lord and the encouragement and the comfort that came into my heart. And and when I saw the tears in his eyes, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I said, tell you what, Ricky, do you have a church when you get to Atlanta that honors Christ and teaches his word? He says, yeah, yeah, I do. I said, you get your tail in there, man. And the kind of work that he does, it's available in Atlanta. That's one reason he's gone. And I said, you get your feet under you, and you know what? Here's what's going to happen. God's going to bring someone along your path, and then you help them. See, we wonder. We have, see, guys, we all have our futures, and we have, we got our scenarios, and then sometimes they'll be lost, and, and the bottom will fall out. And why? Well, Because God's going to comfort you so that one day down the road, he's going to bring someone along your path who might be in the same situation or a totally different situation, but the grace and comfort you've received, you are now going to pass on and you are going to be, catch this, used by God in a significant way as a result of what you went through. So I'm not sure I want to do that. You don't have any choice. That's how God works. That's the pattern that God uses. You can fight him. You can be foolish. But you know what's really interesting? When he takes you through that, you're going to find significance. Because isn't it your heart's desire to be used by God? Sure it is. So the other day, I pick up this new biography on Chuck Colson. I read Born Again. That was Chuck's story about his own life. But I see this one by this guy, Jonathan Aitken. I never heard of this guy. But I start looking at it, start flipping through it. This looks pretty good. And then last night, I'm reading the introduction. And I find out this Jonathan Aitken is a Brit. And then I find out that uh, uh, he had written a biography of Nixon. And when he was writing a biography of Nixon, he called Colson, came over, interviewed him a few times, got to know him a little bit. He wasn't Aitken, uh, not a Christian, just a... Basically, Anglican guy, you know, English guy kind of thing. That's what you do. If you're British, you're an Anglican. Um, He would write books. He was also in politics. Uh, He met Colson. He was a young member of parliament. He actually became uh, defense minister and chief secretary to the treasury when John Major was uh, prime minister. He was viewed as a potential candidate for prime minister in the conservative party, this Jonathan Aitken. But a story was written about him. He took uh, umbrage to it. 
He filed a lawsuit. In the lawsuit, as he was giving testimony, a question was put to him about an action he had taken. Under oath, he lied about it because he was embarrassed. He wound up serving, uh, being sentenced to 18 months in prison. He was a fast-rising star in British politics. The day he was sentenced, by chance, Chuck Colson was in London. There is no chance. Colson sees his name in the paper, sees that this guy's been sentenced to 18 months in prison. Colson comes over and sees him and visits him, begins to dialogue with him. As a result of Jonathan Aitken being in prison, Chuck Colson led him to Jesus Christ. And the reason that they had such a dialogue, if you know Colson's story, is that Colson was top of the line, counsel for Nixon, pick up the phone, call Air Force One. I mean, he, I mean, and he wound up in jail. But as a result, see, he thought his future, he thought there was no future. There was a future, it just wasn't what he anticipated. That's how God works. It can be bitter. It can be brutal. I mean, it can be unbelievably brutal, guys. Look at verse 8. Now I'm going to close with this. But, but I want you to see how tough this can be. Because this is where some of you guys are. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired. The word despair here has the idea of understanding there is absolutely no way of escape. You ever been there in your life? There is absolutely no way out of this. I have ruined my life, or my life is ruined. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. This is Paul talking. Things got so bad for Paul that he wanted to die. And the question is, why? Why? Why, Lord? Well, he tells us why in verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Now catch this. So that we would not trust in ourselves. What is it that guys who are strong, guys who are leaders, what is it that we tend to do? We tend to trust in what? In ourselves. I can handle it. I can get it done. I'll see it through. You can count on me. I'll come up with a plan. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We don't believe that. So God puts guys in situations like this so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Can I tell you something? If you're dead, there's no way out of being dead. There's no exit out of dead. You ought to despair if you're dead. This is getting so deep I can't follow it. But you see what I'm saying? Sometimes in life you get dead and you're not dead. You're just dead in circumstance. You're just... You're dead in the water. And that's where God will step in and he'll show you the future that he has for you. This is normal. If you find yourself in this situation... A lot of times you think, I look at my friends, there's nobody else. Nobody else is in this. They're not in it now. You're in it. 
But at some point in their life, they're going to deal with this. Every man who follows Christ is going to deal with something like this. Not be, I'll be honest with you. The other night, I'm out walking down the pasture, and I'm walking. You know what? Right now, things in my life are going pretty well. I don't have a lot of pain. I don't have a lot of heartache. I don't, I'm, just think, I'm just very grateful for what God's done. And as I'm enjoying that, I'm walking down that pasture, and I'm saying, you know, Lord, I thank you. You've been so good to me. You've been so gracious. But help prepare me for what you've got coming down the road. Because I know he's got some. Now, am I a masochist? Am I a pessimist? No. But I just know that there's a process that God continues to want to take me deeper. He's going to want to take you deeper. And if things just keep going well in my life, you know what? I'm not going to mature, and I'm not going to grow, and I'm not going to go deeper. Because guys, don't, you don't grow when everything's prosperous. You don't develop when everything's going great, and marriage is good, and the sex is good, and, and everything is just wonderful in your life. You don't grow out of that. In fact, you're prone to wander, and you're prone to leave the God we love. So out of his goodness, he afflicts us. So that we can become the men he wants us to be, and down on our guts, the men we desire to be. If you're there, you're not alone. And if you're there, you're not abandoned. He's got his hand all over you. He had his hand on Paul. He had his hand on Joseph in the dungeon. He had his hand on Moses in the wilderness. And those suckers thought they had no future. They had a future. They just couldn't see it. That's the God we serve. And if you're there, you're right on schedule. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. This is tough stuff when it happens. This is hard stuff. When our, when our dreams and hopes are dashed and when life falls apart and, gosh, we thought we had this great plan and it's just not working and, and we don't understand what happened and we thought we were following you and we thought you were leading us and the fact is you were leading us. Lord, you have uh, things that you're attempting to do that we don't know anything about. But I would pray for the guys in this room that are there. I pray, Lord, that you would help them not to get bitter, but to trust. I pray, Lord, instead of bitterness, that they would bow. I pray that they would yield, that they would surrender, that they would not acknowledge they don't know what the heck they're doing, as none of us do. And we would simply say, apart from you, Lord Jesus, I can do nothing. I know what I wanted my future to look like. Lord, I trust you for my future. What do you want it to look like? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do? I yield to your plan. For those guys, Lord, that are there right now, give them hope. Let them know you're with them. Let them know you'll walk them through it. Let them know you'll raise them up. Let them know that just as you rebuilt Colson's life, you'll rebuild their lives. Not in the same way. But you're the same God. So we trust you. In Jesus' name.